Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. And as the bell rings here in the stadium, bells ring all the way around Korea, ringing for peace and connecting everyone to begin the festival. February 2018. It's a cold night in Pyeongchang, South Korea, where the opening ceremonies of the Winter Games are unfolding in an open-roofed pentagonal stadium. The ceremony feels like a futuristic fever dream. The stadium is bathed in purple light. A thousand glowing performers with LED light displays form a giant dove of peace on the field. At one point, over 1,200 drones work in concert to form Olympic rings that shimmer in the night sky. Host countries use the opening ceremonies to celebrate their history and achievements and to showcase their power. The show in Pyeongchang is a miracle of choreography, a meticulously staged showcase of South Korea's cultural and technological might. The ceremonies would later be hailed as dazzling, stunning, and jaw-dropping by the media. The audience is similarly awed by the spectacle. They're also blissfully unaware of the potential disaster that's unfolding behind the scenes. On this frigid night, 35,000 people are huddled in raincoats, knit hats, and blankets. Among them is the game's director of technology, Song Jin Oh. He was there in the, in the audience of the opening ceremony, which he had been working to pull off for more than three years. That's author and journalist Andy Greenberg, who interviewed Oh for a story in Wired. Oh oversaw the IT infrastructure for the entire event. This is a massive collection of computers that's necessary to kind of oversee an Olympics. You know, 10,000 computers, 20,000 mobile devices, 6,300 Wi-Fi routers, 300 servers and multiple data centers. I mean, we don't think a lot about like the IT operations of the Olympics, but they're, they're really complex. And that was his job. The opening ceremonies, bringing together spectators, media members, state dignitaries, and all 3,000 Olympians are the first and biggest test of O's sprawling masterwork. So he's sitting in the audience of the opening ceremony. And if you remember, there was this countdown of Korean children's voices counting down in Korean. And just as they were doing that countdown and the numbers are being projected onto this massive circular stage, that's in front of Song Jun At that exact moment, he got a push notification on his phone that was telling him that basically the entire IT backbone of the Olympics was being destroyed in their data center 100 miles away. As fireworks explode above the stadium to gasps and cheers, Oh learns that a nightmare scenario is playing out 
he realizes that he needs to get to the data center. And even as he does, like he can see that some of the screens are not operating in the Olympic Stadium, that some of the reporters around him were grumbling that the Wi-Fi was already down. Bo dashes out of the stadium and into the parking lot, where he and two staffers get into an SUV and make the 45-minute drive to the data center. There, the scene is chaos and panic. They were just seeing all of their computers crash and then be unable to reboot, just look very corrupted. In fact, they couldn't even use email or messaging on their computers. They, by the time that Song Jun arrived at the data center, they were kind of like standing around in these like anxious groups, just trying to figure out what to do. The destruction is even worse than O imagined. All of the center's domain controllers are damaged. It's become clear to O that this isn't just a glitch in the system. No, this is an attack, a cyber attack on the Olympics. For O and his team, the clock was ticking. In just over two hours, the opening ceremony would conclude. The tens of thousands flooding out of the stadium, including the entire staff, would have no Wi-Fi connection and no access to Olympic apps that are supposed to keep everything running. With the first day of competition scheduled to begin in less than 12 hours, the Olympics are about to go off the rails. It would just be at the least very embarrassing, especially in a country that has a reputation for being very, you know, futuristic and, and very wired. But even worse, you know, if they couldn't get all this stuff back online by the next morning, then everything from, you know, meals to hotel reservations to event ticketing would remain down as the actual games began, which would have been, you know, a really serious problem. Outside the Olympic data center, just about no one knew that the Olympics were on the brink of technological disaster. Those who did quickly had a name for the malware that was decimating the foundation of the event. They called it Olympic Destroyer. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. When it was all said and done, the Pyeongchang Winter Games were praised for their impeccable staging and organization. One journalist reported in USA Today that, quote, it's possible no Olympic Games have ever had so many moving pieces all run on time. But to a small group of insiders, those games represented confusion, doubt, and deception. Today, we'll look back at why. What much of the world didn't know was that the 2018 Winter Olympics were the backdrop to a detective story with layers and layers of deceit. A story with the highest geopolitical stakes imaginable and twists that blindsided the cyber analysts who were on a mission to uncover what would turn out to be a huge global mystery. One that would lead them to the most dangerous hackers in the world. Things like the Olympics, if something matters to the world, it is an opportunity, it is a stage to make a statement. And sometimes those are amazing statements of fraternal love and the human race coming together and appreciating all that we can accomplish. 
a lot of times it's an opportunity to just try to stir the pot and, and cause some trouble. That's Juan Andre Herrero Sade, who goes by the name Jags. He's the lead researcher at Sentinel Labs, which tracks and investigates cyber attacks around the world. In 2018, Jags and other analysts were on high alert when the Winter Games arrived. We were a little more primed than we normally might be. We were essentially just kind of looking out of the corner of our eye to say, you know, is someone going to do something? This is enough of a lightning rod to expect something. Just the fact that the Winter Olympics were happening in South Korea in and of itself is enough for you to kind of raise your eyebrows. I think it's really important to remember that you're in this time of kind of precarious diplomacy. Geopolitical controversy is frequently a backdrop to the Olympics, but the Pyeongchang Games were particularly fraught with tension. The Olympics arrived at a time when it seemed like war between North and South Korea could erupt at any moment on the Korean peninsula. Just a day before the opening ceremonies, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un presided over a military parade in the North Korean capital city, Pyongyang, less than 200 miles from Pyeongchang. The world was on edge as the global focus shifted to a small town nestled in the Taebaek Mountains, 110 miles south of Seoul. And the U.S. decided to do something drastic. Vice President Mike Pence is also coming to the games, warning the U.S. will roll out the toughest, most aggressive sanctions ever against North Korea. We will not allow North Korean propaganda to hijack the message and imagery of the Olympic Games. The night of the opening ceremonies, the imagery of the Olympic Games was front and center. South Korean leaders tried to paint a serene, hopeful picture as Mike Pence looked on from his seat, sitting just a few feet away from Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jung, who was representing North Korea in place of her brother, as well as South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Around the world, nearly 300 million watched from home. Jags was where he usually was, sitting in his home office in Miami, staring at his monitors, following developments halfway around the world. And early in the night, he began hearing rumors out of the cybersecurity community that for the event's organizers, the opening ceremonies weren't going as smoothly as they appeared. They were rife with speculation about this malfunction around the opening ceremonies. The truth is that folks talk, and there was a lot of discussion and bits and pieces that kept coming out of it. The Wi-Fi wasn't working. Well, people weren't able to print their tickets. Well, there is a certain amount of incident response happening, which in itself is like a big flag, right? Like when there's a company deployed on ground doing forensics, then you know something really went wrong. The Olympics' digital nervous system was in such disarray that when Song Jin-ho and his team arrived at the data center as the opening ceremonies were playing out, they made a bold decision to try to completely rebuild the system. To do that, they had to first unplug their entire network. They had to lock out the hackers. You know, they had to reset all of the passwords. At one point, they even went so far as to actually take down all of their data center's connections to the outside world. I mean, truly like isolating themselves to try to get a handle on the problem. It actually did mean that they had to even like take down the Olympics website. 
O and his team managed to use a few salvageable servers to bypass the ones that were compromised. That bought them enough time to get through opening night and avoid a total debacle. But then, O and his staff had to work around the clock to reconstruct the network by the next morning, when the Olympics' first day of competition would begin. At 5 a.m., with the help of a Korean security contractor, they managed to inoculate the network's thousands of PCs with a brand new antivirus program. At 6.30 a.m., they reset all the passwords. And finally, around 8 a.m., they did finish reconstructing the entire network that they had almost rebuilt from scratch. And the opening of the Olympics actually came off without a hitch. O's team solved the problem so quickly that news reporters didn't realize the games had been saved from total disaster. Some kind of cyber attack that uh, had at the very least messed with like screens in the venue and turned off the Wi-Fi for many of the people and broken part of the ticketing system. And some people were unable to get into the stadium. And that was kind of a mystery at the time, like what happened? Even cyber analysts like Jags were skeptical of the severity of the alleged attack. If I'm honest with you, I dismissed the reports early on, as we do most of the time, because you would be surprised how often a glitch or someone fat-fingering a configuration or somebody tripping over a cable somewhere gets turned into, oh my God, a cyber attack just happened. But the true confirmation of all this actually comes from Two good friends of mine, Paul Raskagneris and Warren Mercer over at Cisco Talos, who essentially plant their flag on this and say, hey, look, here's a piece of malware. That evidence caught the attention of the cybersecurity community. The two analysts at Cisco Talos, a threat intelligence agency, quickly published their findings in a blog post in which they gave the malware the name Olympic Destroyer. The details from Cisco Talos gave Jags a trail to follow. So the thing about malware is, in simplest terms, it's just software that's doing something that it isn't intended to do. It's taking malicious activities in a system that doesn't belong to the folks deploying it. There's simple financial malware that's just trying to steal your credit card numbers and steal your passwords, all the way to really nefarious Malware that's trying to affect industrial control systems, turn off the lights, you know, hack the power grid, mess with a factory, etc. So in the case of the Olympics, could they have stolen all the credit cards of everybody that paid for a ticket? Sure. They, you know, take people's passwords off the Wi-Fi, deface the websites. Like there's all kinds of things that are open to the attacker. What they chose to do is that much more interesting because it betrays what looks like an apparent lack of strategic thinking, which is, well, you're in the middle of the opening ceremonies, you're gonna wipe the servers. Of course, you can fix it eventually. You can go and format and call your IT guys and try to get them to fix the systems. In other words, while the attack was serious and alarming, the attackers didn't steal any information or cause any other harm after opening night. I don't know, it was a sort of strange and very targeted punishment against the Olympics itself for a reason at the time was not at all apparent. So central the question became, who the hell would be so bold as to stage such a baffling attack on the Olympics with no apparent goal besides creating chaos? The motive of these hackers was tough to comprehend, but their identity could be figured out more easily. 
While proving the source of a cyber attack has only become more difficult over time, hackers always leave fingerprints after each operation. Clues buried in the code of the malware. Analysts can match those clues to any similar pieces of code in previous cyber attacks. In the case of Olympic Destroyer, the list of suspects started with North Korea. Some of the data-deleting code in the malware had indeed been used by a state-sponsored North Korean hacker group known as Lazarus. Cybersecurity firms were seeing North Korean fingerprints on that, which also kind of made sense because North Korea really, you know, is always hacking everything in South Korea. Some researchers had told me that it did seem to be North Korea who were just perhaps like trying to spy on the Olympics, just as they kind of try to break into everywhere in South Korea to just just to understand their kind of permanent adversary. Yet more cybersecurity firms were, you know, another one was saying that it looked like China, that there were multiple fingerprints that that were unique to Chinese hacking groups. The reason people were pointing, well, some researchers were pointing at China was a portion of code similarity with the malware where they said, hey, this is the same set of routines as this Chinese malware. It was a genuine concern that China may have played a part. On top of North Korea and China, there was a third potential culprit, a country that had been technically banned from the Pyeongchang Games, Russia. At the games in Pyeongchang, Russian athletes were allowed to compete, but not allowed to wear Russian flags or accept medals on behalf of their country. Leading up to that ruling by the IOC, a state-sponsored Russian hacker team known as Fancy Bear had been stealing and leaking data from Olympics-related targets. The Russian government's motivation for an attack on Pyeongchang could be further retaliation for the Olympic slight. People did warn me that, you know, it might be that Russia would try to disrupt the games. And Russia, bizarrely, released this statement even before the Olympics. The Russia's foreign ministry had had made this statement. We know that Western media are planning pseudo investigations on the theme of Russian fingerprints and hacking attacks on information resources related to the hosting of the Winter Olympic Games in the Republic of Korea. Of course, no evidence will be presented to the world. I mean, this was a time when we we had already seen a lot of Russian attacks, uh, like on the U.S. presidential election. So there was a kind of like heightened radar for these things. But it was really bizarre to see Russia, I, I don't know what you call this, to see Russia like proclaim its innocence for attacks that had not even happened yet. Olympic Destroyer included a password-stealing tool that resembled known types of Russian ransomware, but the other clues seemed to lead in many different directions. There are portions of Olympic Destroyer that correlate directly with samples of North Korean malware. Usually, you take that to the bank. When you look at the SWIFT hack of the Bangladeshi Central Bank, A piece of code similarity is actually what let us know that it was the North Koreans that were trying to hack that bank. So there's an established precedent for that being like a smoking gun, where you're like, you know, oh my God, they did it. In this case, there were inconsistencies. There were aspects of the operation that made us very uncomfortable about making that attribution claim. And then comes Egosha. Egosha is Igor Kuznetsov. He's the chief security researcher at Kaspersky, a cybersecurity firm in Moscow. He starts to reverse engineer Olympic Destroyer. That's what brings us to the smoking gun. The smoking gun that Igosha found was an obscure snippet of information called the Rich Header, 
It's kind of a receipt for how a program was put together for computers to run it. To be honest, I think most researchers and reverse engineers weren't very familiar with the rich header because it had never been a very useful feature. It's so esoteric, and there are so many aspects of this that are really complicated and difficult to understand. But essentially, they copy-pasted the bill of goods from one piece of malware to another. And when you look at Olympic Destroyer and you look at the bill of goods, it doesn't make sense. In other words, the data in the rich header that pointed back to North Korea had been forged. The so-called clues in the malware were false. And based on other data in the code, Egosha went even further to say it actually couldn't have been North Korea or China that was behind the attack. All the contradictory clues led to an astonishing revelation. Someone's messing with us. That was the moment where you realized, like, this was an attempt at a false flag attack. And we, as researchers, were the intended audience. We were meant to look at this and go, oh, it was the North Koreans, and sort of set off a chain of dirty geopolitical events on the back of our mistake. Now we know someone's trying to mess with us. What else do we see from these guys? Who the hell are they? Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. This was one of the most confusing cyber attacks I'd ever covered. Andy has covered many notorious cyber attacks through the years. He reported on the 2014 Sony Pictures hack, which was launched by a state-sponsored North Korean group to stop the release of the film, The Interview, a dark comedy about the assassination of Kim Jong-un, which portrayed the dictator in a humorous light. You know, this is so weird. You are like the coolest guy. But a lot of people say that You're batshit crazy. They're not wrong. He also investigated Russia's state-sponsored hack in 2016, which leaked emails from the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign. In recent years, he'd seen cyber spies experimenting with false flag attacks designed to mislead analysts and the public. But this was a different level of deception. This was the first time that I had ever seen multiple false flags, kind of like layers of false flags all wrapped around the same piece of destructive code. It was like they had sort of planted shell casings from a gun that was unique to a different hacker group at the scene of the crime. It was like they'd done that for multiple hacker groups. I mean, in fact, it was hard to know, of course, which of these shell casings was real and which was had been planted to frame someone. Andy says the malware at the Pyeongchang Olympics took digital deception several evolutionary steps forward by leading to not one, but multiple culprits. The hackers wanted the cyber analysts to point their fingers at North Korea or China. Their aim went beyond creating chaos at the opening ceremonies. It was to create chaos in the reaction to the cyber attack. It's meant to be seen by certain folks and it's meant to be thought of in a certain way. When you talk about a cyber attack that's meant to be considered, you know, a false flag, that's meant to be seen under the banner of somebody else, 
that entails an audience. And in most cases, the audience is us. It's the researchers, the people who are going to be doing the forensic response, the incident response, who are going to have the technical expertise to look at the decision makers and say, this was the North Koreans or this was whomever. Someone tried to use inside baseball knowledge of the threat intelligence industry, the, you know, just our research methods in an attempt to fool us. Fortunately, up until this point, the cybersecurity experts had displayed unusual restraint in pointing fingers. They understood the risk of speaking too soon. So it was a really precarious moment where we were really interested in finding out the truth and also kind of concerned about our own ranks of saying, hey, you know, don't feed the beast yet. Let's figure out what's really happening here. At this point, it seemed like the entire cybersecurity community was focused on the mystery of Olympic Destroyer. One of the many cyber analysts on the case was a Washington, D.C.-based security researcher named Michael Matonis. He was like 28 years old at the time, and he had just started the company. He didn't even have an office yet. He was working in, his, in, in the basement. Matonis took a different approach from everyone else on the case. He traced the trail of deception to the malware code and searched for a pattern. He looked at this Word document that had kind of been used as a fake, as a lure, essentially, in the phishing emails that were initially sent out to all of the targets of this Olympic destroyer campaign. And he started looking for anything that's, that kind of matched that same macro script. And he began to find it in a, a whole collection of other Word documents that all appeared to have been used by this mysterious group. Once he, he had done that, he began to like actually look at what these documents were. And some, very tellingly, were written in Cyrillic, he could see right away. After using Google Translate to decipher the contents, Matonis began making connections to documents that went back to 2017. And you could see that one of them targeted like a Ukrainian LGBT activist group. And another one was like an organizer of the Kyiv Pride Parade. And others targeted like Ukrainian companies and Ukrainian government agencies. So you know, it starts to sound more familiar. He's already got like a pretty good clue of who's responsible here. I mean, who else? You just don't expect North Korea to be hacking multiple Ukrainian organizations as well as the Olympics. Like who is targeting Ukraine? Certainly Russia. The ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine is much bigger than this episode. We can't offer all the proper context. But the conflict between the two countries has included a history of cyber attacks. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014 took place as a series of hacking operations, attacking Ukrainian government agencies, companies, and infrastructure. One group specifically was behind those attacks, a Russian hacker group known as Sandworm. Sandworm has truly done many of the most disruptive and destructive cyber attacks ever seen in history. They were the ones who were the first to ever cause a blackout. And then they released, also in Ukraine, but it quickly spread to the rest of the world, this self-spreading piece of malware, malicious code called NotPetya, that very quickly became the most costly, the most destructive cyber attack in history. After making direct connections between Olympic Destroyer 
and the sandworm attacks in Ukraine, Matonis was able to go even further. He had also found links between the attack on Pyeongchang and the most notorious hacking scandal in U.S. history, the operation that targeted the 2016 U.S. election. Matonis made all these jaw-dropping connections over the course of just a few days, all in a makeshift office. Andy asked him what it felt like to crack the mystery. He, like, described it to me. He was like, you know, um, have you ever ridden a motorcycle? And then he went on to tell me about, like, the first time he had, like, some crappy motorcycle when he was a teenager. But his friends had at one point let him try riding his Harley Davidson with this 1100 EVO engine. As he put it, like within a few seconds, he was just like flying along on this country road in upstate New York, just like laughing uncontrollably and very afraid for his life at the same time. And that is exactly, as he put it, the same feeling that he felt when he had finally solved the mystery of the most deceptive cyber attack ever. It turns out that Matonis wasn't alone in making those connections. The U.S. government had launched their own investigation. And a few weeks after the 2018 Olympics, the Washington Post published a report revealing that the attack on Pyeongchang had been carried out by Russian state-sponsored hackers who were trying to frame North Korea. Then, in July 2018, special counsel Robert Mueller unsealed an indictment against the hackers involved in leaking DNC and Clinton campaign emails during 2016. The indictment named Unit 74455 of the GRU, Russia's military intelligence agency, as the group behind those attacks. And because the activities outlined in that indictment mirrored Olympic Destroyer so closely, Matonis could link Olympic Destroyer to Unit 74455 of the GRU, otherwise known as Sandworm. In 2020, after Andy finished an entire book about Sandworm, his subject was still very much active. A year later, they had also been behind a massive coordinated cyber attack that took down thousands of websites in the country of Georgia. The State Department in 2020 finally said, yes, Sandworm is Unit 7445 of the GRU. They carried out this cyber attack in Georgia and... That, to me, was also meant that was confirmation they had done all the prior attacks, too, that I and Matonis and some other researchers had believed they were responsible for. And then finally, in October of 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice actually indicted six of these sandworm hackers. Good afternoon. Today, we announce criminal charges against the conspiracy of Russian military intelligence officers who stand accused of conducting the most disruptive and destructive series of computer attacks ever attributed to a single group. In this indictment, it you know lists the kind of rap sheets of everything they had done. And it did include the blackouts. It included NotPetya. It included other cyber attacks in Ukraine. It included their role in election hacking in the United States. And finally, it was in there too. They were responsible for Olympic Destroyer, something that's no one had actually made any public statement about until that time, until more than two and a half years later. Although the conspirators took steps to pin the Olympic destroyer attack on North Korea, this second false flag attempt failed. Cybersecurity researchers ultimately attributed the attack to the Sandworm team, as do we today. In 2020, after the Department of Justice announcement, 
Andy got a call from someone who will never, ever forget the moment that Sandworm's attack descended on the Olympics in South Korea. That person is Song Jin-ho. He was really angry about this, that whoever did this, like, he, he just can't understand it. Like, why would you attack this kind of symbol of international peace, this, like, coming together of, like, so many nations in a peaceful way, and that he hopes that the international community can just prevent it from ever happening again. The attacks were ultimately a failure, but those involved in the response are still shaken by it. From O to the cyber analysts like Jags, they wonder what would have happened if they hadn't been able to unravel the mystery so smoothly. It's a form of playing with chaos, right? Like if I introduce some chaos into this very brittle diplomatic situation, what happens, right? Are we gonna see an overreaction? Are we gonna see you know, overtures of war in the Korean peninsula? Is the U.S. going to overreact on the back of that? Are other people going to get involved? I think they failed spectacularly in that they gave us a thread to pull that made us become very aware of all the other things they were doing. But I also don't think that Russian military intelligence are, they're a bull in a china shop. They just kind of throw some spaghetti at the wall and see if the wall breaks. Indictments aren't going to stop hacks like Olympic Destroyer from happening in the future. But while hackers can evolve, so can the community defending against them. The story of Olympic Destroyer is not just a story of disaster. It's also a story of triumph, with an important lesson in an age of disinformation. I am unusually proud of the threat intelligence community for that particular incident because we tend to jump to conclusions. Even in the most technically sophisticated realms, there are layers of abstraction and deception that take some study. And there are very concerted efforts by well-funded attackers that are meant to mislead, that take advantage of our human propensity to jump to conclusions and want easy answers. Normally, we're not necessarily the best about kind of like putting our heads down and making sure we're absolutely right before we go talking to to some larger audience. In this case, I was really proud and surprised that people kind of kept their speculation more to themselves in the early days and tried to really figure out what was happening. And I mean, maybe that's to our credit. Maybe we're maturing. Or maybe this story was too good to be true. Sandworm is still out there. And they're certainly not the only group planning their next cyber attack. But those on the other side will be ready too. Ready to hack the hackers. To come together and find the truth. Even when it's buried in a world of deceit and mistrust. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Albert Chen. Story editing from James Boo. Editing from Ben Chug. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. This episode used original reporting from Andy Greenberg. If you want to learn more about Sandworm, check out Andy's book, 
Sandworm, a new era of cyber war, and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. Next time on Torched, I'm talking about Title IX with Yael Averbach, the GM and head of operations at Gotham FC, former player for the U.S. women's national team, and the first executive director of the National Women's Soccer League Players Association. I think this is truly an amazing point in time for women's sports. And I, my entire involvement from the time I gained consciousness about the trajectory of women's sports and the lack of equality and all those things, I haven't been aware of a time that I think is as impactful as this time. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.